Let's pray this morning. We're going to look at Mark chapter 12 here. Father, oh, what a joy to be with the family of God, whether whether here or in California or around the world. Um, you have your people. You have, you have declared a group of people that you call out of the world. And you do that through your gospel. It gets proclaimed that there is no other way to the Father except through Christ. In that truth, Lord, you take it and you plunge that into the hearts and minds of individuals. And you grant them this faith. And, and then we repent and we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're part of the church. Part of this group of people that will spend eternity with our Savior forever. So what a privilege it is. Sing together. Be under the word to, together. Be discipled. Grow into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless our gathering tonight, this morning and tonight, Lord, that it would honor you in all that we sing, say, and do, Lord. Father, we know there's people going through difficulties. Uh, uh, we pray that you would just strengthen them, Lord. Uh, I think of a dear sister, Phyllis, that's not here today. I pray you would just help her. She struggled with a, a hard, hard cold and illness, Lord. Just, she wants so dearly to be here. I pray you'd strengthen her, Lord. Be with all the rest of our family that can't be here as well. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, he said, enter through the narrow gate. Now listen to this. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Many of you know I cowboyed for a lot of years. Um, that was the way we provided for income as we started out in ministry. Um, and at most of our cowboying, we had a smaller ranch that we couldn't quite live off of our livestock. So I cowboyed and that get, got me into the community and got me introduced to a lot of people and share the gospel with people. Um, but eventually you'd end up in all these different ranches. And it was always interesting because one of the things when you went to work for somebody, one, you looked and see if they had lights over their corrals because that means he's going to work you for a long time, even into the dark. So always look for that. The other thing you looked at is how their corrals were set up. How hard is it to get those cows that don't want to come in into that corral? And most of the time, it was terrible. They're trying to push 1,000 cows through a narrow gate. Cows spread out, go crazy, get mad, turn around, get go all... And, and so when you think about designing your own ranch or your own uh, corrals and livestock handling areas, you think about how to get them in there. And even then, even then, you've done all the necessary preparation. You've built everything to lead them to that gate to get them in there. And just about the time you're there, one of the dogs gets loose and runs and stands in the gate barks, goes crazy, scares them all away, and, and then the rodeo begins. Redirecting them away from the truth, away from that gate. I love this passage because this is a passage that I just quoted to you in Matthew that really what Jesus is talking about in much of his ministry. There is a gate. It's narrow. Few find it. It's narrow because you cannot come with your own stuff. It's like those turnstiles at Disney. Try to jam a uh, stroller through there. It won't work. You can't bring your suitcases. You can't bring all the great things that you have done in the past to get through that gate. 
It is narrow. You come in by yourself. You don't come in as a family. You come in one at a time. But there's another gate. There's another gate. And it's just right or left of this narrow gate. Just right there. Extremely close. And there's a gate that leads to a very broad, broad path of destruction. And the Bible say, says that many go that direction. And here in our passage in Mark, we have the Lord Jesus standing before the religious leaders and a large crowd of people who have made four attempts to discredit him. Their best theological arguments, their best design plan to destroy who Jesus is in the presence of both the people and the Romans. And each time they have failed. Here we have one in the end of this passage that we've read this morning here. Uh, if you look back with me at verse 32, there is a scribe here that Jesus says in, in verse 34 that he is not far from the kingdom. There is one out of all of them that reject the Lord Jesus Christ that have devised a plan to kill him as well as discredit him. There is one whom seems that the Lord says is not far from the kingdom of God. I'm not sure that there were any more like him. John chapter 12 verse 42 says that there were other rulers who believed in him, but because of fear of the leaders of the Pharisees, they did not come out publicly. So there are others, but, but this young man, this, this scribe, seems to say, look, there's something about this man. He has answered wisely. He has answered good, correctly. And he seems to be interested in the Lord Jesus Christ. The previous verse in verse 32, notice this, the scribe said, rightly, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no one else beside him. Now, this is an interesting statement. Remember, we finished last week talking about that the Lord Jesus Christ has been even just recently, right before the resurrection of Lazarus, just before he came to Jerusalem, talked about that he is one with the Father. He has not hidden the fact that he proclaims boldly that he and the Father share the same glory. You've seen me, you what? You've seen the Father. This is how he speaks. So this young man is trying to figure out that, that wait a minute, you, you've given this correct answer as we've charged you what is the greatest command. You've said to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, but you also said the Lord is one. The Lord is one. And so here this scribe is wrestling with this. We, we know that you think you're equal to the Father. But yet, when we ask you the question, you came up with the right answer, and he wants to know more. Now, notice in verse 33, he combines some things. He says, you, you've said that there's one God, there's none like him, in verse 32, 33, and you loved him, with, and you're to love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, and all your strength, and love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. Now notice he combines several things. He combines them into the word understanding. Love him with all your 
with your soul and your mind. He brings this word. Sunes is the Greek word. It means you're to love him with, with all your comprehension and your intelligence and even your shrewdness. You should, you should love God in that way. And he combines that type of thought. And then notice that he boldly acknowledges the superiority of the moral law of God over the ceremonial law of God. And that's what he says at the end of verse 33, it is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So, so that means, he says, it's greater to love God with, with your whole being than the sacrificial system of Moses. It's quite a statement. And look, look they're right at Passover. It's Wednesday. Monday, they've selected their lamb, right? So it's Wednesday, and so it's right in the middle of that. And he says, you're correct, it's better to love God than to sacrifice. And so it's quite a statement here. So in other words, the scribe is saying that God is more pleased with an entirety of the whole being to love God than to come to him through a list and a, and a requirements of duties in order to gain his favor. Now, on one hand, the scribe sees this new, this, this, this command is the greatest but on the other hand, he's having a problem with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, look, we've, we've heard you say that you and the Father are one. We've heard you say that before Abraham was, I am. So I got a problem with you. And yet you answer the question correctly that the greatest command is to love God with your entire being. And so this is why Jesus says in verse 34, look at this. You are not far from the kingdom of God. This is our first thought this morning. We may only get through two this morning because we'll line up the last one with the last text in Mark on the widow in the temple. But look at this with me in verse 34 now. Number one, the narrow entrance is easily missed. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, verse 34, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one ventured to ask him any more questions. He uses a word, it's an adverb here, intelligently. It's only used one time in the whole New Testament. He uses that here. So in other words, Jesus says, look, you're listening well, you're answering well, you're, you're processing things with your own mind versus the pressure of the others. That's what I think he's saying. You're intelligently thinking through this. See, see that tells you that Jesus says that he's He's trying to understand God's word. He's trying to understand the truth of God's word and he's not being influenced by these others. Now, it also tells you what he thinks of the others when you look at this. He, he, it's all singular. And when Jesus saw that he had answered him intelligently, he said to him, you, singular, are not far from the kingdom of God. So it helps you understand that Jesus sees the rest of these as very distant from the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus says this, you are not far from the kingdom of God, it's to help the scribe understand the importance of love of God places him near the spiritual kingdom of God. Now, the, the kingdom of God was not on earth yet. It's still coming. But the spiritual kingdom of God is the role that God reigns over our lives. And we truly believe in him. So he says, you are close you're close to letting God truly rule over your life and you have full faith in him. And so it seems the scribe has, has come quite a distance compared to the others. 
Now, now this little phrase, not far, I want to talk about that just for a moment. Um, see, this made it very clear, because I think I, I look at this first positive, but then as I studied it, I go, uh-oh, this has got a little bit of negative to it, too. I mean, you all heard the, the saying, horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Mm. The kingdom of God, if missed, no matter how far or how close you missed it, ends in eternal judgment. And so here the Lord has said, you are, you are not far, but you have not arrived. There's, there's a great missing truth to what you are seeking. And until he receives the love of the person of Christ, till he receives the kingdom of God that would be incarnate in Christ. He sees Christ as fully God. He sees Christ as the only way. He is not far, but he is not in. That's a real important point. It's extremely important. Until you receive the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, understand who he is, eternal punishment still waits. And I don't know, I, I look forward to, I hope I want to know this when I get to heaven. I don't know whether the scribe ever entered the kingdom of God through Christ alone. However, I, I think this phrase, not far from the kingdom of God, rightly describe, describes the condition of so many today. How many have been raised in the church? How many have heard the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ? How many have sang the songs that we sang today and yet missed the kingdom of God? They, they would pronounce even that they love God, but they have not bent the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage is actually about. Jesus is going to show them the only way to the Lord, to Yahweh, is through him. Now, admittedly, think about this. Loving the Lord with our whole being is impossible on ourselves. With ourselves, Right? We talked about this a touch last week. And I want to I hit this for a moment. Everything in me, I, I would love to say, stand here before you this morning and say, I love the Lord with my whole being. My heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. I'm absolutely 100% dedicated. Then my wife could come up and tell you that's not true. <laughs> She'd be very nice about it. But she knows me. And I know me more importantly. There are none righteous, no, not one. There is not one person who comes before the God and says, look, I love you with all my heart and my soul and my strength. Let me in. There's no one. And in all reality, we realize we're all sinners. We're all incapable of loving God in that way to fulfill that command. We are desperate for help to do this. This must be the work of Christ in us. This must be the work of the Spirit in order to get us to be these type of people, right? Who would reflect the image of Christ. And I guess we have, we still have to look at this. You can't say, oh yeah, well, I can't get there. I'll just, you know, keep going. No, no, there's a desire. I think what happens as a saved person, you desire this. You say, God, as I've confessed to you this morning, I don't love you all the time with all my heart, my soul, and my strength. But this is where the saved people say, but I want to. See, that's the Spirit of God pushing you. I want to deal with sin in my life that's contrary to you. And, and here's the way I describe sin. Those things that cost your death, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what sin is, right? Let's define what sin is. It costs the death of Christ. So when I confess sin, even now I say, Lord, uh, that, 
lustful thought, that bad word, that whatever it may be that I have sinned in, um, that anger, whatever it may be. I said, I say, Lord, that cost the life of your son. Will you forgive me? See, you want to start loving the Lord with all your heart, you've got to start dealing with sin. And so the Bible teaches us how to do that. and teaches us that's God's goal. It wants this taking place in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all, believers, with unveiled faces, beholding the mirror of the glory of the Lord. Let's stop right there. As believers, we now see God, we see Christ for who he is. And, and, and I think one of the things that we get caught up in is the church is we look at the world and we go, Oh, they're doing all those bad things. They, the veil's not up. The veil lays on their faces, their spiritual faces. They cannot see clearly who God is. In fact, whatever view they have is distorted because they're still in their sin. But not the case with you and I, those that profess the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our veil has been lifted. We look and say, we know who he is. We know where he came from. We know what the Lord Jesus Christ did on this earth. We know that he died for us. And so we, that's why Paul says it this, we with unveiled faces, what happens now is we look into the mirror of the glory of the Lord because we're now image bearers of him. We look at that glory and we go, oh Lord, I need to change. Change me, Lord. And well, Scott, weren't we changed at salvation? Absolutely, you were dead and now you're alive. You were lost and now you're found. You were blind spiritually and now you see. Absolutely, there was a great change that took place there. But God continues to change his people into the image of his son while you're on this earth. That's what he does. And so Paul says, look, beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord, you study God's word, you look at it, it's like a mirror. You look and you go, oh, wow, I see the glory of God. And then we are being present continually tense here, present continual tense, being transformed into the image of the glory from glory, meaning from the glory of our salvation to the day we step into his presence, God is transforming us. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is answer, how do we love the Lord with all our heart, our soul, mind, and strength? How do we love him with our entire being? It is a process, isn't it? New believers come to Christ and they're so grateful that Jesus, they realize Jesus died for them, they receive the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's a process as they grow, right? I, I'm definitely different than I was when I was saved. I hope in a better way, right? I hope the Lord's transforming me. And that's the goal of this. Now, think about this just a little further. If you're in this room and you're a professing believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, you actually took up the cross and followed him. That means whatever God has given you, whatever circumstances you've been in, no matter who you've married to, what, what God has given you in this life, burdens, difficulties under, under this world of sin, we take up that cross in the name of Christ and we follow him. We don't take up somebody else's cross. We'd like to sometimes, right? But we take up our own. We follow that cross. There's something that we need to die to and we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to change us. Look, look with me at 2 Peter chapter 2. Excuse me, chapter 1. I just want to drive this home because I would hate for people to leave this and say, I think I'm still, I'm still I may be close to the kingdom of God, but I'm going to miss it. 
The other day we were coming home. I was listening to a radio program. I went right by our turnoff. And I, I, Gene will tell you, I kind of pride myself on my, my directions and all that stuff. I, I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> Apparently not. Went right by the exit. Gene goes, uh, we turn it off there? I mean, I missed it by that much, as Maxwell Smart would say. Just missed it. And it cost me. I had to go all the way down, all the way down to Daytona, turn around, <laughs> come back. That's what happens. So, so let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. This is a good passage to see if you're, you're, you're through the narrow gate and you're growing, right? Peter says in chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about having the same faith as us, which is beautiful. Peter didn't have a hierarchy faith of some sort. And then he gives grace and peace, is multiplied to the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, always tying them together. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now this is a very important verse, isn't it? It means that as saved individuals, God has given us everything we need in life. That's salvation, right? He's given us life and in godliness the daily stuff. God has given us, through the word of God, the indwelling work of the Spirit in our life, he's given us everything we need, right, to continue to grow. Notice he goes on to say, through the true knowledge of him. That's why we have our Bibles on our lap. It's, it's fun watching so many people here who come into church carrying their Bible. I think that's great. So through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. He did not call you by your family heritage. That's not going to get you into heaven. He did not call you by your church attendance and how much you give and, and all the lists that you could put before him. He called you by his own glory and excellence. He has a much greater, higher standard to save people than man has. Verse four, for by these, by, for by these he is granted, it's a Passive term, right? He did this to us is the idea of us. By this, he has granted to all of us the precious and magnificent promises. Well, what are those? One, I'm not only going to save you, is I'm going to keep you saved. I'll never lose you. All that the Father gives me, I will lose none of them. I'm coming, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I'm done, I'll come back and bring you to myself, right? I mean, he has promises. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. These are the promises he's given to believers. Notice, these are precious and magnificent. So that by them you may become partakers of his divine nature. There's so much theology here. I just want to talk about that just for a moment. You go, well, how do I become a partaker of the divine nature of God? Well, number one, he puts his own spirit in you. Think about that. Scott Menez walks around this earth with the Spirit of God living in him. And you do too, if you're a believer. That astounds me, that God would do such a thing. It identifies us with the triune God. He knows his children because they're eternally marked with his Spirit. That's what causes us to want to obey the Word of God. That's that desire in there to go, God, God I want to love you more. I want, to, I want to love you with my entire being. That's what's driving that. And so he, he grants us that. You say, well, Scott, how do I, I know? Well, one, you escape the corruption of this world, right? You begin to turn from the world. There's a corruption of this world. It's anti-God. It's anti-Christ. 
It's anti-salvation through Jesus alone. You start to turn from that corruption. And notice what happens. Again, this is not just storing up works of your own. This is what God's doing. His Spirit's in there. Now notice verse 5. Now for this reason also, applying all diligent, put effort towards this, in your faith supply moral excellence. Now, notice in that passage, this is really, this is good exegesis here. Let's look at this. In your faith supply moral excellence. Notice he didn't say get faith. Did you notice that? He didn't say supply your own faith, faith your way to God, and then be moral excellence. Why? Because you can't faith your way to God. Remember, we are dead in our sins. There's no spiritual heartbeat before salvation. We cannot rescue ourselves. So faith is not something we just somehow wake up and faith our way to God. God must grant us faith to believe in his son, which drives us to repentance, which now brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ in belief in him. And so why Peter doesn't say add add faith is because God already gave you faith. That's part of this divine power that he has granted to you. So listen, if we speak, if we speak soteriologi- soteriologically correct in here, meaning speak about salvation corrected here, we would say we could not save ourselves. I did not save myself. I may have walked an aisle, said a prayer, went in a room and prayed with somebody, got on my knees with a grandmother or a parent. That may have all happened, but there was no way that a dead man can save himself. So we must, if we're true believers, we hold to the scriptures, we say God had to save me. So now look what takes place. You want to know that you're going to miss the gate or not? Well, here's what tells you that God has brought you through this narrow gate. One, he gave you faith. And because of that faith, there's a moral excellence. The, the, the bottom platform that starts to build on there is God starts to change your priorities. You start thinking different. Sin starts to bother you. Imagine that. You watch the TV and you go, oh, that's just plain wickedness. Or, or if you're like me, you begin to examine your life. As you get saved, you go, oh, wow, Jesus died for that. The Bible says immorality, sexual pleasures and all the things. He goes through lists in Galatians and Ephesians and 1 Corinthians 6 over all these things that will not be in the kingdom of God. These people will not be there. And so you begin to go, God, this is not of you. I have a new desire. It's not something that I'm kind of working my way to. God gives you a new desire for moral excellence. Oh, so many testimonies through the years. People living in sin, immoral, whatever else, all kinds of sin. They, for the first time in their life, they're empowered by God to say no to sin. Can you imagine that? Yes, you can. Nod your head. Because if you're a believer in here, you were able to say no to sin now by God. And you turn from it. It's the mark of somebody who's been through the narrow gate. Find somebody who says yes to sin all the time. They don't ever turn from it. But they go, well, I, I, I raised a hand. I walked an aisle. I said a prayer. Well, you might have went to another gate saying those things. Because one of the things that begins to happen is God begins to change our character. Into whose character? Christ, remember? He's changing us into the image of Christ. So one of the first things that this faith, this God-given faith does, is it begins to build the building block of true change in our life, moral excellence here. Moral excellence leads to knowledge. 
Well, more elections begins to say, God, I don't want to do this, and I want to know you more. So you go, I want to be discipled. You start to come to people, and you say, hey, I want to know my Bible a little better. Can you help me? You, you get engaged in BFGs and discipleship programs, and, and, and you begin to read your Bible daily on your own because you want to know this God who's changing you. So fun to see people get saved, right? Because they start tossing things out of their life. Go, man, I, God, man that, that killed Christ. Uh, yeah, that killed Christ. I love this Savior of mine, so I want to walk with him. And then they just can desire. They can't feed him enough. They want to know God. They're not just church attenders anymore showing up on Sunday and that's it, or you know, if nothing else is happening or the game's not on, maybe I'll go. These people want to be with the body of Christ. They want to be with the, the family of God. See, there's a desire now in their hearts they had not happened before. So they want to know, and then knowledge, look at verse 6, knowledge goes to self-control. Ooh, that's a good one, huh? A lot of our sin is because of lack of self-control, isn't it? So God, through giving us faith, starts to change our moral character. He begins to, to help us know him more. That knowledge leads to self-control because we know this God we worship and this Savior who died for us. And then it goes on from there. Notice self-control goes to perseverance. You know why? Because when you get saved, not everything's perfect in your life, is it? In fact, wouldn't we say it's more difficult once you get saved sometimes? Because before... I didn't really care about my sin in relationship to God. Now I do. And I'm really bugged with my sin. God, you've got to help me. I have an ailment or something's going on in my life, but now I know God. The knowledge of God helps me trust him and I persevere through this life. You can see the building blocks. This is somebody who's been through the narrow gate. This is not somebody on a broad road of destruction. Quickly, we'll move. Look at perseverance. Moves to godliness. Godliness is this, act, this idea of a reflection of God in our life. When Moses came out of the mount, they had to put a veil on him because his, his face shined so brightly because he was in the presence of God. He reflected the presence of God. When the angels came to announce the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, they came directly from the presence of God and they shone right into the darkness, Luke 2 tells us. We start to have a reflection. Someone recently told me, um, they've been living for the Lord. They told me this the other day. They said they're at work, and, the, and someone said, are you a Christian? He said, why do you ask? He goes, you're just so different than the rest of us. Good testimony. Great lead-in. Great time to talk about what Jesus has done for you. See, he was reflecting godliness, and that either bugs people to death or they're interested and so there's a reflection. This is how we know we're through the narrow gate. Notice your godliness leads to brotherly kindness. This is this phileo type of kindness. This is this consideration for other people. You start to be a kind person. <laughs> You're not cutting everybody off on the highway. Everything's about you. You're, you start to be considerate of those who are around you. In fact, you care whether people are going to heaven or hell. You care now. And there's a brotherly kindness to you. Your brotherly kindness leads to agape love. That's what that word is there. This is, think about this. This is the same kind of love that God loves us. You start to love spouse, children, neighbors, church members, unconditionally. 
You are not looking to do something for somebody in order to get something back. There's something now within you, something changed within you, now that desires to say, I just want to love this person because Christ loved me. See, this is how you identify if you've been through the narrow gate. There is this great change. And, and just quickly it goes on, for if these qualities are yours and increasing. See, there's a, we're just kind of growing more in the image of Christ. Yeah, we got some swales in them, some times where we're very selfish and not thinking of, of others and certainly not thinking of God. And, and yet we come to repentance and we start to grow again. If these times are happening, notice it says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, look at this, and I love this phrase, verse eight. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember we talked about the tree that was in, that Jesus cursed. And, we, and it's such an illustration. There's people there with full leaves on, but nothing, nothing of the fruit of Christ in their life. See, I love this. If this is yours, and they're increasing. This is why we talk about progressive sanctification, growing progressively, slowly but surely, even with our failures, but growing steadily in the image of Christ, we produce fruit for the glory of Christ. And here's what it looks like. Just like they said about this gentleman, somebody comes along, they taste something in you, and they go, who are you? <laughs> That's a flavor I am not familiar with you're bearing fruit. That's God's goal. Bear fruit. Be an image bearer of my son. This is how we know we go through the narrow gate. Then it says, verse 9, for if, for he who lacks these qualities, now there's a problem here, right? There's a lacking of these. You, I hope you're honest with yourself. You're either in verse 8 or you're in verse 9 right here is blind and short-sighted. I think this person's still in the faith, but they're, they're flatlining or even declining in some way, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now listen to that, brothers and sisters. What Peter is telling us is there's times in our life where we forget what Jesus did. And let me tell you when that is. You want to know when that is? When we sin. When I sin, I'm going to be dead honest with you. I am not thinking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thinking about me. And so there's a point in our lives at times where we fail to say, oh Christ, you died for that. Keep me from that sin. Help me recognize that. See, these are narrow gate people. <laughs> these are people who've been through the narrow gate. We wrestle with our sin. We're not happy with those. At times we confess and repent of those and turn from that sin. Now, verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about, about his calling and choosing of you. Do you want to know if God has called you and chose you for eternity? I think, a, <laughs> I think you want to know that, don't you? Right? For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So there's a practice to it. Oh, yeah, there is, huh? How many of us just... You wake up in the morning, you are going, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to share Christ with the first person I see. I mean, do you think that way? Your pastor doesn't <laughs> at times, right? So, so, but the Bible says, if we start to think this way, if we, if we are progressing in the image of Christ, we will never stumble. And I love that phrase in verse 10. I want that phrase. I've prayed that phrase many times. God, I want to be a person who never stumbles. 
for your glory, not mine. And then verse 11 comes. For in this way, the entrance of the kingdom of God, our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied. The Bible says when we're living for the Lord Jesus Christ, heaven looks beautiful to us. And we long for it. We don't long for it because of all the problems here and elections and all the garbage that may go on. No, no, you long because you've been turning your life by the strength of Christ, by the strength of the Spirit in your life to live for him. You're longing, you're longing to be with him. Do you long for the return of Christ? See, these are markers. Narrow gate, broad road of destruction. The Bible says few find the narrow gate. Not all of the city of Ormond and Daytona and Volusia County is in this building right now. Few, few find it. It's a denial of self. And so as you go back to our passage in Mark, this is a very important question that Jesus has posed. He begins to ask, where are you? And he's, he's going to turn into this next spot here, this, this, which is our second point, and we'll, we'll end with this. But he said, I said in our point here, only a few find Jesus to be God and man. And so Jesus starts to question. He, he starts to turn the tables now here on these Jews. These, these people have been wrestling with who Christ is. Is he the Messiah? Why does he do the things he does? Why does he say those things? And, and I think everybody has to ask the question, who is Jesus? And, and, and so right now, what he's going to do with this scribe and this crowd is he's going to begin to make them wrestle with who he is. Notice verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught them in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Verse 36. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, inspiration, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, verse 37, calls him Lord. So in what sense is he son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Historically, you have to understand the Jews did not believe the Messiah was God. They just didn't believe it. They believed him just to be a man. They expected the Messiah to come with unparalleled power and authority. They expected the Messiah to come and conquer their enemies and fulfill the land covenants and give them back the land God had promised them. And so in their mind, the Messiah would only be a son, a descendant of David. And he would usher in the kingdom And he'd be a savior, think about this, he would be a savior to the nation, but not their souls. So Jesus is what he's going to do here, is going to question their view of who the Messiah is. And here's the key. They did not, and still don't today, believe that the Messiah would be God in human flesh. And that's what's keeping them out of the kingdom of God. Jesus had made his teaching clear. He and the Father were one. Um, His good works, they they even said, we're stoning you not because of your good works, but because you make yourself out to be God. And so here, this scribe had, had applauded Jesus on his right answer that he said, the Lord our God is one. And, and, and now, 
now they're trying to, well, well, you wait a minute, you've been saying you're equal with God, but now you said the Lord is one. We need to know what do you think about yourself? And Jesus is going to do this. He's going to show them that he shares the same glory. He shares the same essence and he shares the same substance as God. And Jesus Christ was here on this earth and he veiled who he completely was so that he would, he would die for man. But this is where he's going to start to unveil these things and drive them even more crazy. Now, notice that throughout his life, he displayed things that we, they should have seen who he was. So what's he do? He, he heals people that only God can do. He forgives sins that only God can do. He steals the waters. He creates bread and to feed multitudes. He has over and over, and not even to mention the authority and power of his preaching, he has demonstrated him. But, but the question for them was, after all these waves of question you're bringing them, do you see me for who I am? See, they hated him because they loved their power. They hated him because he exposed their, their hypocrisy. And most important, they hated him because he claimed to be God. So in verse 34, Jesus asked them, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and this is why. He's telling them, you're not far from the kingdom of God because you have seen that I've answered correctly, but you do not save, uh, accept me as a savior, as God. Now, look at verse 35, just real briefly. Jesus began to teach them. And he taught them in the temple. How does the scribe say that Christ is the son of David? I, I, just one note here. I, I think it's beautiful what Jesus does. It's kind of one last invitation. He's going to the cross in two days. And then he's going to be ascended on high. So he's one last invitation to this scribe and these leaders. And I love that he does this, despite their, their hatefulness, despite how they have treated him for this whole, these three years of ministry, he, he comes to them and he's, and he's, he's in a way, what are you going to do with me? And, he, and here's this young man, he's close to the kingdom of God and he takes time with him. I, I think what's also encouraging is we know that some of these men do come out of this. Men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. These men find the kingdom of God because they put their faith in Jesus Christ that he's God and he can bring them to the Father. So he asks this question in 35, how is it the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Now, Christ knows that if you fail to answer this question right, eternal damnation awaits. If he's merely just a man, he can't save you. Right? This is, think with me, this is what separates us from all the other religions of the world. You know that. Just start naming them off. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Muslim. Just keep going down. All believe Jesus is a man. That's why they're not in the kingdom of God. That's why they're not saved. So this is an important question. Matthew, the Matthew, the, the um, synopsis text, the text that parallels this in Matthew chapter 22, phrases it this way. Who do you think, uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. In other words, how can you believe in a Messiah who's just a human descendant? That's what Jesus is trying to get to them with, right? 
So now remember, they're thinking son of David. They're thinking 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Bible says there that God was going to raise up a son after David and, and he would be a descendant of David and he would live forever and he would, uh, he would have a kingdom that never ends. And so they, they're thinking humanly, right? The blind men that Jesus healed, they cried out, um, son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. The Canaanite woman who had a sick daughter, uh, a, a demon-possessed daughter, she cried out, oh, son of David. So this term was readily upon them. Even as he came in in the triumphal entry, they sang, Hosanna, son of David. So, so gene- Jesus had to have the genealogy on the hum- human side to be that, to be that, that son of David. And that's why the genealogy start in Matthew and Luke and prove that he was on those lines. But listen, brothers and sisters, if he's not God, nobody gets saved. So look what he does in verse 36 and 37. David himself in the Holy Spirit says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, what Jesus is gonna do here, he's gonna take Psalms 110, a Psalm that they struggled with, and he's going to do excellent exposition on this Psalm. He uses Psalms 110, verse one, because he wants to prove that this psalm was not about just King David. It was something more than that. And so Psalm 110 has historically been a problem for the Jews. It's been a historic problem for, our, for the false religions of the world. Do you know that Jehovah Witnesses and Mormon think that that passage is about Abraham? They think it's possibly about Melchizedek. They do not believe that passage is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And liberal theologians, when you read them, they just said David was mistaken when he wrote it. So the Bible's wrong? So I'll tell you what they believe in inspiration. But notice what the verse actually says. David himself said in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, look, this is pure inspiration. The Spirit of God moved David to say these words. So false religions are rejecting the revealed word of God. The Greek reads this, apen kyrios tu kyrios mu. Apen kyrios tu kyrios mu. It's a statement that says that the Lord is equal with the Lord. The Lord is equal with the Lord. And, And so it has to be greater than the son of David. A human cannot... We'll never be able to sit at the right hand of the Father and say we're equal with the Father. The Lord said to the Lord. Now, what, we had a young Iranian man that was um, in our area and we had been witnessing to him. And uh, I remember the day he came up and he got saved. It was this verse because he came up and said, he said, Pastor Scott, I've been wrestling with the gospel that you preach. And I came to this verse. What does this mean? Because if I interpret this verse right, That means that this cannot be a mere human son of David. It has to be God is talking to himself. That's how he interpreted it. So look at the verse again, isn't it? The Lord said to my Lord. (laughs) So this this is the father and the son in a conversation, right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies underneath your foot, put my enemies underneath your feet. So this is a sovereign statement. And, he's, and here's Jesus going, well, who is that? He's making them answer the question, who is that? You think the Messiah is some mere man. You thought it was Maccabees when he came in during the silent years and he won some battles and wars, but he ended up dying. 
You've had all these other people write in and claim themselves to be. Who is this Lord in this passage? He's making them deal with it here, isn't he? And so this is, this is an amazing position. Notice the rest of the verse sits at my right hand. This is the elevated position of the Messiah. He's the right hand of the Father. So whatever the Father does, he does. Whatever the Father says, he says. Um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am one with the Father. These are the statements. He is saying, look, I am that one. That's what the Father said to me. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, think about this. The statement of authority can only be fulfilled by a God-man, right? So, so somebody has to come to earth be a Messiah, be like us so he can die for us, and then also bring us into the presence of God. So, so hear this statement, he will put his enemies under his footstool. Uh, Luke records it that way. Just a side note to jot down. If you go to Joshua chapter 10, 24 through 26 there, um, the Israelites have rooted out five, I believe, Amorite kings there. And Joshua comes and says, put your foot on their neck displaying complete authority over those who rejected the God of the Israelites. And this term is brought forward and speaks of Christ that God has set Jesus Christ as authority over all until he makes all his enemies underneath his foot. So um, thus he'll make those. Look at verse 37, and we'll quit with this. And David said, David himself called him Lord. So then he asked this question again. So in what sense is he his son? In what sense is he his son? See, Jesus was not merely trying to confound the leaders, but to show them in order to be accepted um, into this narrow gate, to be, to be truly reliable interpreters of the scriptures, there must be a higher view of the Messiah. Now, I, I want to, I want to end with this. When you and I got saved, we did not say, oh, Jesus is God. We probably did not have that full understanding. We knew that Jesus did something for us that we could not do. Meaning he died in our place and he died for our sins. But there's not a Christian in this room who follows the Lord Jesus Christ that didn't shortly after that begin to understand Jesus was not a man, not just a mere man. He, he certainly added flesh, added flesh to his divine nature so he could come to this world. He could live a sinless life. He could die. You can't kill God, so he had to have flesh in order to die, right? And so somewhere in your discipleship, somewhere in your coming to know Jesus Christ, you begin to understand that Jesus is not some mere man. Now, here's why this is so important. These Jews thought they could get to the kingdom of heaven by their own good works. They thought, look, we, we pray three times a day. We don't, we don't interact with unclean people. You know, remember the young rich man that came to him? Same thing. We've done all these things from our youth. We inherit the kingdom of God. What they miss, like so many people, is you need a savior. You need a divine being who came to this earth, who died for you in a perfect life and a perfect death in order for you to be in the kingdom of God. And just like so many um, in our day, they miss that. And so Jesus has to be both God and man in order to save us. 
And so what Jesus is doing in this, look, the Lord said to my Lord, he's quoting this passage that they didn't know quite what to do with. Sit at my right hand and tell my enemies, um, or, or tell you, I put your enemies beneath your feet. And so David calls himself Lord. So in what sense is he a son? So this has got to be something more than David. So this is the problem. And look, uh, we'll finish this next week because this last passage will lead us into the widow's might. But what he's doing, he said, you're not going to get to the kingdom of God. You're not going to enter the heaven. You'll come close, some of you, but you'll never enter into the eternal kingdom of God if you don't come through me. I'm the only way. And so that's the message we preach, right? We preach Jesus Christ alone. There's no one that can get to the Father except through him. And Jesus is displaying that through this passage. Next week, he's going to now show who they are. He's going to display their hypocritical, their, their false life. And then he's going to take his disciples into the temple and he's going to watch a widow give two mites. And it's not a passage on giving. He's going to prove what they've done to the people of Israel by their false teaching. Be a great text to teach. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that you've given us life in Christ. Lord, as Christians, as people who went through the narrow gate by your grace, there should be change in us. We should be different types of people, Lord. Faith has changed our moral character. The faith you gave us has given us a hunger for the knowledge of God. We can't be just normal, everyday, believe in Jesus and go live any way, Lord. You've changed us. So, Lord, I pray there's probably people in this room that, as they heard this, questioned, I wonder if I've gone through the narrow gate. There's nothing in my life. I, I have a confession, but I don't have a changed life. Lord, I pray right now you would show them that their only way to have a changed life, only way to have a changed life, is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And he'll produce fruit. He'll produce change. Lord, for those who find our confidence only in you and you have, you have changed our life, we pray that we would continue to grow. We would not say we're believers, but not, but not live and change and be more, more like you, changing in the image of Christ. We, we pray that we would not be hypocritical in that. We pray, Lord, that we would take our sins serious, each one of us. We would realize that each time we sin, that would remind us that is why Christ died. And we would quickly confess that and turn from those sins, Lord. So Father, we thank you that you sent your son. We, you, in a sense, sent yourself. You sent the word who was with you, who has always from the beginning been with you. Because he alone, he alone could do what we needed. So Lord, help us put our faith alone in Jesus Christ. May we share this beautiful message with others. In Jesus' name.